You're listening to Wake Up Tucson. This podcast is a Bustos Media production on The Voice. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Eight oh seven in the morning. You're on Wake Up Tucson, ten thirty. The Voice. Remember, if you miss anything, kvy.com, hit podcasts. Also on all fine and not so fine podcast platforms out there, including Google Podcasts and Mad Magazine. Uh, that last one's not true. Now, um, I, I, before we get to Victoria Coates from the uh, Heritage Foundation, I want to get to uh, uh, one of our listeners. Uh, spent a couple of things. He goes, why Republicans lose election? This has to do, based on my discussion with Mike Vellante from America First Policy Institute. And um, this is um, from uh, Scott or Eileen. There, They have one of those cute shared um, email things. Uh, loving couple. I like that. Uh, answer is pretty simple. The quality of candidates. When you vote for candidates in the primary that name call and trash other candidates in your party, you will lose the general election. That's what why that's part of part of our problem. Definitely. So how are we looking there, Matt? Let's go right to the phone. 790-2040. If you want to call in with any questions or wake up Tucson comments, we have Victoria Coates. Senior research fellow, as I like to say, I always tell, don't send me any junior research fellows. I only want <laughs> senior ones. So, Victoria, how many junior fellows are there at, at, at the Heritage? There's got to be zero, right? Well, we just call them fellows. Oh, okay. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Now, I was, I was looking at your bio, which is very, very long. All I care about is you're an established scholar in Italian Renaissance art. Well, that's that's the thing is you have to start with the PhD in, in art history to do any of the things that I've done, and otherwise, I'm simply not going to talk to you. I'm sure your uh, I'm sure yeah. your parents are like, you got a PhD in what? No. <laughs> Actually, my father was the one who pushed me into it. He was he was a frustrated art historian. He studied mathematics at Harvard, which turned out to be far more lucrative. But uh, he he loved the discipline, and he he was the one who suggested I get into it and. Uh, I know we're we're on to talk about other things, but you know care. one of the <laughs> one of one of what what's been helpful to me is you know using it as a path to history. Sure. And you know the book I wrote a couple of years ago is a history of democracy told through ten works of art. Wow! So if you look at the if you look at the Parthenon, you're going to have a better sense of what ancient Athens is. And if you just read Thucydides, you know, it's, it's, it's bringing all these things together. So what's the book called? The discipline can be useful. Uh, it's called David Sling, a history of democracy in 10 works of art. Nice. All right. Well, now yeah. I'm going to be hopping on my Amazon and getting the, <laughs> uh, so here we are, this whole Ukrainian thing where we're in the middle of this thing and there's so many moving parts to it from the Biden family and, all the stuff here. What, I want to get to your piece that you guys wrote about the four questions that need to be asked. But what I want to ask you about in the first place is should we be involved in the Ukrainian-Russian thing in the first place? And if it's yes, then, of course, why? Or no? Yes. I mean, that's, that's the million-dollar question or perhaps $100 billion question, depending right. on how you're counting. Um, and my answer would be yes, but uh, that that... My issue here is I've been dealing with Putin's aggressions into Europe, you know, Georgia in 2008, Crimea in 2014. 
I was in the Senate then working for Senator Cruz, and we were very uh, engaged, obviously, with that issue. I don't want to be back here on the radio with you five years from now because he's taken a bite out of Estonia or another NATO country, and we have to go in. I, I think the strategic goal for the United States right now should be to end this and, and end his aggressive ambitions so we don't wind up in a worse place down the road because you can't argue now that he won't he won't do it again because you know he believes in international norms or whatever he, yes this is what he does so you know we have this demonstrated pattern the issue the bigger issue i have is with the administration i mean i just think it is should be shocking to every american that last night he could stand up there and talk for more than an hour and ukraine got what two sentences Sure. After he's committed a hundred billion of our dollars, uh, all of our most sensitive equipment, potentially, you know, downgraded our ability to respond to a Chinese incursion against Taiwan. He's done all these things. Where's the explanation? Where's the rationale? Where's the strategy for victory? So and yeah. So tell me about the. Um, why, so uh, there's two questions I have. Why? So we know that Putin's a bad character. We know he likes to flex a little bit on a lot of different things. But why he could have he could have invaded Ukraine three years ago, five years ago? Why spring of 2021? I know he didn't want to do it after the Olympics, of course. But why spring of 21 was the time he needed to do it then? What do you think? Well, it's actually spring of 22. Oh, sorry, 22. Uh, I apologize. That's okay. Because I was actually just doing some mental mathematics, which is hard for me. Uh, well, I mean, I think there's perfectly good reason why he didn't do it three years ago, which is he knew because Donald Trump told him that he would bomb Moscow if he went into Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, Trump was just unpredictable enough that tyrants like Putin and Xi didn't, really didn't want to test him because they weren't sure what he would do. And that had a, a tremendous power on the world stage. And, you know, you notice that we don't have these kinds of, of provocations during his tenure. And so I think having a very strong American president who can hold his or her own, you know, with these these less savory world leaders that you have to deal with is is a key to, you know, maintaining our position. And I think you know, especially after Afghanistan and the horrible blow that did to our international prestige and then to our, our resolve here at home. I think it was just incredibly demoralizing. Well, and also leaving a truckload of uh, amazing uh, a, a mili- of a, amazing amount of a military equipment mm-hmm. that we didn't even burn or blow up. We just left it there is also amazing. Oh, no, I mean, shameful. Um, so my other question is going into this is also with of Biden being weaker perceived well just he's weaker than Trump right but talk about how conflicted Joe Biden and the, the family is in relation to Ukraine financially in relation to because that's the other part of this situation that most of the media is not going to talk about is talk about how conflicted they are in the anything that has to do with Ukraine in the first place with Ukraine in the first place no it's 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 shocking. And it's actually a two headed monster because you have both the Ukrainian issues and then you have the China issues. Uh, and I think with with Ukraine, I, I remember where I was in the Senate when my then assistant came to me and said, Hunter Biden has gone on the board of Burisma. Like what? You know, how could this happen? You know what? Who said this was a good idea? You know, and, and, and what is the rationale behind it? And you just see these companies funneling money to the family. 
uh, hand over fist, and there's only one reason. They want access to Joe, and they want Joe's contacts, and they want Joe's uh, influence. And it's the same thing with China and the University of Pennsylvania that gave me that PhD in art history, and they're probably <laughs> going to take it back at this point. Uh, but you know, they, the $55 million to the university for the Biden Center, and <laughs> Joe's getting 900 That came straight out of China. Unnamed donors, but they're Chinese. Uh, 900000 for Joe for doing nothing for Penn for those years. And then 55 mil behold, to do celebrate yeah. Joe Biden. And then lo and behold, now the president of Penn, who signed my diploma, Amy Gutman, is now our ambassador to Germany. And the president of the board of trustees is now David Cohen, is now our ambassador to Canada. Two of the most lucrative ambassadorships we you can get because of the trade connections between the countries. So all of this just stinks to high heaven. Uh, and the media won't say boo about it. Uh, but it, 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 it explains a lot of their behavior. They don't want to upset China. <sighs> Victoria, I want to get into the four questions that you wrote in this piece. And you can go to uh, heritage.org to find out. It's called Russia-Ukraine War at One Year. Congress should not offer another dime until four questions are answered. And we will run through that with Victoria after a commercial break. Is that okay? That sounds good. Awesome. Thank you. We're talking to Victoria Coates. She is a senior fellow over at the Heritage Foundation. Here we go. It's National Opera Day. Here we go. The classic. All right. You're on Wake Up Tucson, 1030 The Voice, local news and talk. Sorry about that, Matt. Uh, we're on with Victoria Coates, senior fellow from the Heritage Foundation. We're talking about uh, her piece that she co-wrote about four questions that have to be answered before we keep putting more money into the Ukrainian uh, conflict. So, uh, Victoria, thank you for holding on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I enjoyed hearing about your weather. Absolutely. <laughs> Where are, you, are you calling from the uh, swamp, swamp-esque area? I, I am. I am. Right smack in the middle of the swamp right now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, number one, you talk about has the admin- how has the administration adjusted to the intelligence failure that this was going to be a quick Russian victory? So, talk us through that. Yeah, that's, that's really one of the critical points. The administration came and briefed the Hill and everybody who would listen that this was going to be a three-day war. Putin would roll into Kiev. Uh, the Zelensky government would go into exile, and we would be arming an insurgency and trying to make Putin's life miserable. And one can see why they believe that. I'm not faulting them. I mean, intelligence failures happen all the time, but it's what happens when you figure out what actually is going on. And so, you know, I first weighed in on this last April when it became clear that that it wasn't, I mean, that the Ukrainians could win, that they were fighting back and doing so bravely, and I think rightly have enjoyed the admiration of the international community. But my good friend, Representative Chip Roy from from Texas, and I wrote an op-ed just in April on the Hill saying, you know, what are we doing here? You know, it was $1.3 billion last week. This week, you want $33 billion. The Republicans in Congress are plussing it up to 50. It, what what Yikes. What's happening? And, you know, at that point, we needed to hear, okay, actually, we are going to now pivot to arming the Ukrainians to win. And in which case, you know, if you're going to send a Patriot, send it last July so that they can win by the end of the summer. And we're not still here, you know, a year into this grinding, terrible war, you know, with the ever-present threat of escalation. So we really wanted to hear from the administration, you know, at the one-year mark 
uh, you know, what, what they, how, how they had changed their strategy and what the strategy was. And that simply has not been forthcoming. The uh, so I guess the question is, especially because Ukraine's so important for world grain supply, fertilizer. I mean, with all the other things going on on this planet, and you know, in, in America, with a dozen eggs or eight dollars now, um, it's such an important area for what's going on globally. I guess the thing is, why why are we letting it drag on? And actually, why hasn't why didn't Putin roll roll them in three days? Well, they, they fought back, and uh, I think we had done a lot of training uh, of the Ukrainians during the Trump administration, uh, it, you know, in, out of concerns that something like this might have happened. So they were better equipped and better trained than I think Putin understood. Uh, Putin's war machine is not everything it's been cracked up to be, and that's something else I'd actually like to hear from the intelligence community is why they were telling us for low these many years that Russia was basically invincible when it turns out they're not. Uh, and so I think you know, for for those reasons, uh, you know, the Ukrainians have been able to both maintain their positions and now, you know, they can make some advances. And I think that that is when the administration needed to say, OK, we're in it to win it. But instead, they've been very timid and incremental in the assistance they've been willing to give. And, and that's why I you know, have felt compelled to ask, you know, why am I spending taxpayer dollars to perpetuate a stalemate? I have a friend who has a son in the uh, Marines, and all of a sudden he said in the last 30 days they've kind of changed his whole thing on what he's doing and, uh, and where they've just, they've just shipped him out to, where he's getting, they're, they're worried about that they're going to send him into... Ukraine soon. What are you What are you seeing on the military deployment side of this? Well, that's obviously the constant worry. I mean, my my grandfather was second wave into D Day uh, in World War II, and he fought his way across Europe so that his great grandson, my son, doesn't have to. So I think really it would be, you know, the height of your responsibility for the administration to allow this to escalate to the point that we would have to send. Americans uh, to, to fight this war. And, and quite frankly, the Ukrainians that I've spoken to don't want that. Uh, they, they feel that this is their fight. This is their country. They're obviously grateful for the aid and they need it, uh, you know, if they are going to win. But but they're not calling for American boots on the ground. And, and I think that that should be kept that way. Uh, and the nothing nothing good will come from Americans in a ground war in Europe right now. So we got about uh, a little less than three minutes. So but let's let's just talk end game, right? Because one of your questions mm-hmm. is, what does the administration see as the end game? I guess I'm going to ask you, what's a, what's a what's an appropriate end game for Ukraine? Forget about the Biden people; they're insane. So, what what do you think is the appropriate end game? <laughs> well, as I said in the previous segment, the the end game for me is not this is not going to happen again. That we we end end Putin's ability to mount this kind of aggressive uh, aggressive action and convince him that he is worse off if he doesn't get out of Ukraine than if, if he perce- persists. And, you know, the Ukrainians will have, you know, their issues that been, when we get to some kind of negotiation, which is inevitable, it will happen. But it should happen from a position of Ukrainian strength, you know, with clarity on what Washington is what are our red lines? So when you, I suppose, when you say take away his ability to do this again, so okay, let's say he goes out with his tail between his legs, saving a little face going out. How how does he? How do we stop him from doing it again? 
Well, I think we have to continue the really crushing economic sanctions that only we can apply. And they're certainly strengthened when the Europeans come along with us. But we, we're going to have to starve him of resources until he is willing to demonstrate that he, he is not going to maintain the ability to inflict violent mayhem on his on his neighbors. You know, I would much rather he does it for the good of humanity, but he's not going to. So he has to be, as I said, starved of resources. And that gets us into the energy issue, which I'm sure is of great interest to your listeners. And we can come back to that another day. But it's why the United States should be flexing as an energy superpower sure. that can make up for any any Russian exports that we take off the market in order to curb Putin's behavior. Amen. Well, Victoria, thanks for uh, thanks for filling us in on a lot of the stuff. I appreciate the conversation, and uh, we'll definitely do it again. And maybe we'll just do art history next time. Forget about this <laughs> Russian crap. That would be much more pleasant. <laughs> All right. Thanks for everything. Have a good day, and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks. Take care, Chris. Victoria Coates. She is a senior fellow. We don't talk to those regular fellows. Senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We got a lot of tabs. I want to talk about... I want to talk a little bit about uh, Chad Kazmar's recent uh, interview with um, Valerie Cavazos. She buried that lead. Uh, where they, and towards the end of it, she he takes uh, Conover and throws her under the uh, spiritual bus. You're on Wake Up Tucson, 10th of The Voice, local news and talk. Little Bella Fleck, get out your pat- p- <laughs> patchouli. I almost didn't say it right. Wake up. 8.33 in the morning, you're on Wake Up Tucson, 10.30 of the voice, local news and talk. Dr. Neil, uh, after we talked about it, he had lunch at Vero's yesterday, very good, and then he watched the Cody's Wish video that was talked about by the U of A and enjoyed that also. Thanks, amigo. So, that's what we're doing, generating uh, this kind of uh, commerce in uh, Tucson, Arizona. All right, a good conversation with both uh, well, Juan was great at 6.30, but the, the meat that was brought by Volante at 7.07 in Victoria, good stuff. Very, very good stuff. All right, we got to get to this interview. Uh, Valerie's doing a nice job. You know, she did a, uh, I think she did a deep dive interview with Chief Kazmar, and then they're breaking it into multiple stories. So in this discussion uh, with um, with Chief Kazmar, um, as Matt mentioned... <laughs> It's kind of buried in the back, okay, of the of down down deep in the story. And um he talks about um how short they are on officers, right? And he says uh in January of twenty twenty two they were short hundred and twenty two officers with a hundred and five of those in patrol. Um and Casmore was brutally honest when I asked if he had enough staff now. Do I have so here we go. This this is this is this is a huge line that he didn't say earlier, but he's now saying. This is before we get to Conover. Okay. Do I have enough officers to keep a community this size with the crime that we have? The answer is no. You don't pay me to tell you no, you pay me to come up with solutions, which is nice. But that is the first time I've heard Chief Kazmar say he does not have enough officers to keep Tucson safe. And that is on Rahina Romero, Nikki Lee, Paul Cunningham, Steve Kazachik, Shirley Scott. I can just keep going down the line of the people in the last 10 years. Paul Durham, Mike Dahl, 
Lane Santa Cruz. Uh, I'll just say Rahina Romero again, right? So I'm just telling you, this is the, that's the first time. Have you? I, I, that's the first time I've heard Chad say he doesn't have enough humans to keep a place safe. And I really uh, appreciate the way he handled the question because yep. first of all, he says I don't have enough. He says but it's my job to make it work. So he took ownership of the issue. So he says, yes, I don't have enough. Yes, we have no bananas. Yes, yes, I have no enough. I don't have enough um, officers. But here's what I'm doing to get around that, right? Yes. The other thing I took from this series of uh, this, uh, this interview, which was broken up into a couple stories, is look at where he cites areas where he's had success and look at the common thread. So he cited success in violent crime by doing a little targeting, figuring out some apartment complex groups of clusters of apartment complex in three different areas. He put extra patrols there and he got results. And then the other thing that he got results with was on traffic fatalities where he had $800,000 from the state to pay overtime to get, again, to apply more officers to the problem. So the, the, the bottom line is they need more money for more. I mean, it's very clear. Where, where he can put more officers, he can get results and move the needle, right? Or the, the foil, so to speak. So what he's, what, he's, what he's proven, right? Everything you and I and everyone's ever said, right? This is a manpower situation. Sure. Because he, he says, look, we, we've taken a couple of approaches. Uh, uh, the thing with uh, 30,000 uh, contacts with people. Right. And 6,000 of them were warnings. He says, but sometimes we have to do enforcement. So that, I guess that's 24,000 tickets they've written. That seems like a lot, but maybe they have. But... The thing of it is, he got he got some money so he could pay overtime to officers to, to do their job, what they want to do, what yeah. they're trained to do. And guess what? When you can apply more police surveillance enforcement presence, guess what? It does work. It lowers crime. So that was my big takeaway. No, you're he, right. He took responsibility, and he also demonstrated that where he can put more police uh, personnel on a, on an issue, it gets better. So concentrating manpower and having the manpower out, increased manpower decreases misery. How's that for fascinating? I'll buy that. Right. Which they don't want to talk about. Right. Cause remember when you have one or two bad cops or four cops out of zillions do crap things, they all must suck according to the mayor and Lane Santa Cruz and Steve Kozachek. And so that's the reason why the rest of you are allowed to suffer in an unsafe city. And your, and your chief of police just said he does not have enough people to keep you safe. Now, part B. A year ago, Chief Casmore said he did not see eye-to-eye -eye with Laura Conover on how drug crimes are handled, a dra major driver in high crime in the high crime rates. Here we go. One year later, that hasn't changed. Quote, we need clear delineation on simple drug possession case. I need clear direction so I can get that to my staff so they understand the rules of engagement. That requires cooperation and conversation with Ms. Conover. So he does know how to speak well. So what we're hearing is that the chief of police in Tucson at the ground zero of the hell that's going on in this community neither gets cooperation or conversation with Laura Conover. It was a pretty amazing line. I can't believe that uh, KOLD kind of buried the lead on that one. That was... To, to me, the, the Conover discussion is a whole other that's story. That's a whole story. 
I mean, for the, for him to go public as the chief of police and say that, yeah, the two, that's the, that's a story. So, in a, think about it. In a story, the police we have a police chief that says in the same story that he doesn't have enough humans to keep you safe, and then number two is Laura Conover neither cooperates or converses with Chief Kazmar anymore on things like how do we figure out drug possession, which is the major driver of the misery in this town. I mean, folks, that was literally the last paragraph, the last words of that article. Correct. Laura Conover stinks again? I can't believe it. I'm in shock. I'm in shock. Um, let's see. If you're a airbnb -er in Oral Valley, they are now want you to get a license. And you got to look into this. So Scottsdale just pulled this so uh, I have a, a I have month a, ago. I have a buddy of mine who wanted to rent his house out for the Super Bowl. And what happened was, all of a sudden, they put... Him and uh, him and his girlfriend put their house on put the house on Airbnb, and they got the cease and desist letter from Scottsdale. Scottsdale literally has someone from the their city government trolling through Airbnb listings. Because you have to get a permit first, right? right? Yeah. Yep. And they did say that in the article. We we put it on our news a few weeks ago. They said that not only were they going to work enforcement. They were they were encouraging people to rat out their neighbors who were renting their houses out. That's where we're at. There was a lady yesterday at the call to the audience who was complaining about that she she bought a house across from Rideau Racetrack and she can't believe it's noisy, right? Because it's only been there for eighty years. Um, and I got to go back and listen. I think I, I I pray to Jesus. She said when she was talking about what she's you know they, she want she want to give us her resume of how great she was. I think she said COVID investigator because if she said COVID invest, I got to go back and let, it would just be the greatest thing ever. I'll just, I mean, you can't get a more ultimate Karen than a Pima County COVID investigator. Um, but, and again, I understand the town back on the Airbnb story, right? That towns are trying to figure out how to, well, first of all, make money off of it as best as possible. I assume Airbnb is doing a good job getting those taxes over there. Uh, then you're going to have a lot of people who don't, oh, like communities like Sedona is a perfect one, right? The, the percentage of Airbnbs in Sedona, I think, is that the people who live there think it's getting out of hand. And they want a certain percentage that wants to be Airbnbs compared to your your whole now before so and again what I've learned I have Airbnbs in my neighborhood my Airbnb neighbors are better than the ones who rented out to twelve month uh, like people on a twelve month unfurnished lease they're actually better you know why because people that rent an Airbnb you also as a renter you get rated online right so if you're an if you're an a hole you can basically hurt your chances of anyone wanting you in their house again. Where if you're a you're a six to twelve month unfurnished renter, no one really cares, and you can just disappear. So, I, and I'm just gonna. And also, when you rent it on a nightly basis, it increases the monthly rent that is being paid for the place, and it usually brings a better quality of renter living in your neighborhood. Now, if you have the places where they're doing the loud parties. That's a problem. I get that. But in the end, I'm going to tell you something. I'm cool with the Airbnbs in my neighborhood. I, I the, It replaced a 12-month renter behind next to me. Best thing that ever happened was getting rid of the 12-month renters. The best.
So uh, let's go to the phones. Let's go to Charles. Charles, good morning, bud. How are you doing? Good morning. You know, uh, a few years ago, Goldwater Institute was instrumental in getting Prop 207 passed. And what it said was that if a municipality downzoned you, wouldn't allow you the zoning that you wanted to have, that you uh, that you could, it was cause for action for a lawsuit, and that they could owe you the imputed cost of whatever you wouldn't they wouldn't give you for life. Um, I suggest that whoever has that happen to them, they look at a Prop 207 claim and do it instantly. Because now what you do is you become the aggressor, as opposed to becoming the defender in an action. You send them the cease and desist letter. You say, if you don't stop harassing me about this, I will have no other course of action but to file a Prop 207 claim. And then not only will this be litigated, it'll become precedent for why no one else can ever do it either. No, it's a good idea. I should reach out. I should go talk to Tim up there and just say, "Hey, how does a Prop 207 uh, apply to something like this?" I'd, and if he thinks that there's a some meat there, we'll bring him on and talk about it. What a neat what a neat show booking idea. Nice going there, Haller. Nice job. Love it. Mm-hmm. See ya. Thanks, buddy. Um, so I do love when you see um. The, when we talk about the USDA announcing proposed changes to nutritional guidelines to schools, right? And they talk about how 15 million and 30 million school children who eat school breakfast and lunch, um, and they talk about sugar and salt, right? And I, And you see a couple of people talking about, you know, what's in all of this food, right? Here's the thing. If you're going to pay f- money for kids to eat at your school, the number one thing you should be looking at is sugar. I can have a discussion about sodium, don't get me wrong. But if you're not if you're not if you're not you're, if you're not digging down on the sugar, you're lost. Right? I mean, sugar is when we talk about the the the, the sugar battle out there, right? And you talk about all the health situations that are going on. And you talk about obesity and diabetes and blood, blood, and, uh, blood pressure and all of those things out there. Heart disease, right? If you're not tackling sugar, you're, you're, you're lost, right? I, the calorie in, calorie out things lose. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't pan out. Sugar and eating overly processed crap is the battle. So if you really want to treat America's school kids good when it comes to the eats, it's sugar and processed crap. That's where you're at. And I know there's a cost to not eating, have you know, serving kids processed junk. But when you look at what's floating around the schools in relation to corn syrup, uh, like in sodas and all these things, if you really want to set an example for the children, sugar. That is, that's it. That's number one. We can get, I can have a discussion about sodium. Sugar's the killer, dude. It's in every, it, it, again, just, just go open your, go look at your next bottle of Kraft Ranch dressing. And see how much sugar is in that. You're like, oh, I'm having a salad. This is great. I'm going to put some ranch dressing on it. Even if you say, oh, I'm going to do the Italiano by Kraft. 
There's a truckload of sugar in there, kids. Sugar's the battle. So when we when we figure that out, you want to help solve the uh, Medicare situation over the next 50 years? Start with sugar. That's where I'm at. Let's go to break. Part two of tabs coming up, as we like to say. Look at you, a little gentle Satriani today. You're on Wake Up Tucson, 1030 The Voice, local news and talk. Nice job. Better than that patchouli crap you were playing before. <laughs> uh, Dan Shearer, I would highly recommend a film called That Sugar Film, available on YouTube. It's a great documentary. Yeah, I'd watch it, man. Seriously, I, I, I already have it up on my on my YouTubes right now, so I'll have to watch that. Um, we we're just talking about USDA and... Uh, what's being served in cafeterias and I'm telling you kids sugar that's the battle um, let's see uh, be, so this is from listener Mike well I think Dan Shear is the best journalist by far in the area maybe in the country I'm not a big fan of his ignoring Matt Hines and his conduct I wonder if this latest incident where Dr. Ketchup is hiding out eating his bagel during the call to the public, I think it's a continued dereliction of duty should rise to the level of newsworthy for the because of uh, to the Pima County taxpayers. Well, hopefully. Hopefully that happens. Um, one of our moles inside the county. <laughs> hey, Chris, love the show. Uh, if you want to see some interesting waste of money, look at the clerk of the court office of Pima County, the IT guy sean you mentioned as being number 100 on the list of six-figure employees was forced to resign due to security issues on the it network then hired as a consultant at the same time they added three positions making six figures are very close the it department was moved to the supreme court group so less responsibility more high-paid employees was this the guy that the that they fired and then they hired him as a consultant who has the voting mainframe in his garage next to his Corvette and the classified docs. <laughs> wonder about that. Yeah. wonder if that's the same one. Uh, if that uh, Pima County employee is still listening. So I will tell you, one of my favorite things about Pima County employees listening to the show. We did a happy hour at, um, it was at Grant's place. It was at Union in the, in the patio. And I remember uh, a lady came by. I can't tell you what I can't tell you what department which she is because they'll nail her. And what happens is their whole department listens to Wake Up Tucson in the morning. And what happens is the lady who's like the front on front reception, it, it, they remind it. There's like a thing if the wrong person's coming down, she has a signal for them to lower the whatever computer they're listening on. So it's like um, it's like Hogan's Heroes or The Great Escape, right? When the guard's coming, the guy starts hitting his spoon against the uh, against the wall because one of the guards are coming. That that when she told me that story, I was it's one of my favorite stories ever. Wake up to some listeners is oh no, there's a Pima County guard coming. We better we better we better lower the rate. We better lower the uh, the computer so no one hears that they're listening to Wake Up. Warm my hearts. Uh, usually people just complain about Matt's traffic reports, right? That was wrong. Or they get on his case because he doesn't they're know They're well to... within, they're well, they're probably right all the time. So. Then, of course, I've, I've had the ones who, the, uh, this is when you first started. I haven't heard this in like a year or so. But when you first started, Matt doesn't know how to pronounce the the words of the streets, right, correctly, right? I've, I've heard that one before. 
But this is from Bill number two. Hey, Matt, thank you. Yesterday I had an early um, uh, eye appointment at the VA on 6th, and your Wake Up Tucson traffic report saved me from participating in the I-10 parking lot program. All right. I got another message from somebody else along the same lines. That's why we do it. You know, he had a little problem when he said Ajo today, but other than that, you know, he's fine. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Ajo and green stick, as we like to say. Um, I want to get back to the crazy old man yelling at people in Congress yesterday. Um, So again, so um, even McCarthy behind him had to laugh when Biden said this one which has been proved totally wrong, talking about McDonald's workers. 30 million uh, workers had to sign a non-compete agreement when they took a job. So the cashier at the burger place can't cross the street and take the same job at another burger place to make a couple of bucks more, unquote. And you you even see McCarthy laughing in the back going, what is going on? What is going on here? Now here's the other one that was quite a head-scratcher. For the last year, years, our democracy's been on, been threatened, attacked, and put at risk. Put to the test here in this very room on January 6th. And then just a few moves ago, unhinged by the big lie, an assailant unleashed political violence in the home of then-Speaker of the House of Representatives. So the guy who was drinking with... <laughs> Paul Pelosi was a January sixer. I mean, is that where we're going? Am I missing? Is there something in the reporting about the January sixer that, that the Paul Pelosi guy was a, was, was a January six guy. That's what he said. He says, because Pelosi was there. Right. I mean, I just see the picture of him and the guy holding the hammer together, like they're friends. And then all of a sudden the guy attacks him when the cops show up. So Biden saying that January 6th is why Paul Pelosi got attacked. Does anyone really believe that? I I don't. <laughs> I don't at all. Get a hammer, not Viking horns. I don't I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm just, just saying. <sighs> now, Matt, I feel like, you know, we talk about our bad idea jeans commercial on Saturday. Night all Live. the time. All right. Here's I feel like this is potential bad idea. We're going to remake Faulty Towers. Yeah, I saw that too. Uh, you know, I'm a Faulty Towers guy. I think it's, yes, I think we're it's, both huge Faulty Towers. I think it's guys. among the best. Uh, only 12 episodes. I think it's among the be- best TV series ever, which was probably because they stopped after 12. Correct. Right? Correct. So I'm interested to see it, and we'll see how it goes. So what's going to happen is he's playing, it's going to play Basil again, opposite his real life daughter, Camilla. If anybody can pull this off, obviously John Cleese, he's, you know. Right. I'm just saying. I'm a little worried. And Manuel's dead. Unfortunately, yes. So I got no Manuel either. And Sybil either has passed or she um, she has, I know she had either Alzheimer's or dementia. So, um, but I think she passed. I did love, I, I did love Polly, the, the, who co-wrote it. She was married to him at the time. Connie, uh, Connie Booth, yeah. Yeah, she was great. Mm-hmm. All right. Matt, get, take me to your podcast of what the hell we did today. I need I need the scorecard. You know your whole your 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 thing that you write. That there we go. That's the one. Thank you, buddy. 
All right. This, in case you missed it, I'm going to do it real quick. Juan Siscomani called in after his response on the State of the Union. We had great fun at the Board of Soups meeting yesterday. You guys did a great job at Call to the Audience. Steve Christie was great at his point of personal privilege. Then we had Mike Vellante talking about the 2022 election and a great call from Noah about uh, the Kimberly Yee conundrum. Then we had Victoria Coates from the Heritage Foundation talking about Ukraine and Chief Kazmar admits the Valcavazos. We don't have enough cops and Laura Conover doesn't talk to him. Haymaker. See you tomorrow. Wake up.